Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our special Sunday mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, the straw man himself, Andrew Ram Page. How are you, buddy? Uh, good, mate. I'm very well. Yourself? I'm exceptionally well. Thank you. Joining us from strawman.com, of course, as I said. What is Strawman again, Tommy? Mate, we are a uh, platform of interested and engaged investors that seek towards our mutual betterment. There you go. That sounds like something you're interested in. How's that? I try and find out. Go on. I try and come up with a different description each week. So, yeah. <laughs> I like it. I like it. I'm waiting for like yeah. the 35th or 36th week where you got to try and come up with something brand new. That's the that's gonna be the real fun. <laughs> Our listeners can uh, can see if you can come up with something, mate. Uh, we got a full <laughs> mailbag again. So what do you reckon we just get straight into it? Let's do it. Dive straight right. in. I reckon. Here we go. Um, now this is one about New Zealand. Do you know much about New Zealand? I love New Zealand. I know as an Aussie, you're not allowed to say that, but I, I just, I think it's, it's. If I was ever going to emigrate somewhere, that'd be right up there. I think towards the top. I think of the New list. Zealand's one of those things. Like it's like a little brother, right? It's like you're allowed to hate them, but no one else is allowed to hate them. You know, it's one of those. It's like South Africa. You know, like we, we like to beat them in the rugby, but if they're playing someone else, I'll happily go for them. It's kind of my my thing. Yeah, with, totally. With those countries. Yep. All yep. right. Yep. So here's the question from Dan. He says, "Hey Scott." And Andrew, on your recent podcast, you have mentioned the Aussie government decision to allow people to access their super early, being terrible for long-term wealth of Australians. Yeah, I might have ranted about that a bit. Uh, this was before your time, Andrew, but I'm happy to re-rant if you'd like. If you want, if you want to catch up, I can, I can go off a long run on that one anytime you want. Anyway, <laughs> I, think I, question, get, I think I know what you're going to say. I'm sure you do. Dan says, my question for you is this. In New Zealand, our super, called KiwiSaver, can be accessed and taken out to go towards a deposit for a first home. I was wondering what your thoughts are on this pros and cons thanks for your thoughts dan hashtag kiwi fool hashtag overseas fool loving the hashtags dan thank you uh you also asked if there are any new zealand stocks on our radar and also mentioned um his partner bella who we've talked to we've talked to dan and we've asked his his question before bella has started investing a small amount fortnightly in a total world index fund thanks for your help in getting her investing awesome bella well done and our pleasure dan that's what we're here for mate that those are though honestly you know for all of the picking great stocks and helping helping people make even more money uh, getting people started is really what uh, what i'm excited about so uh, bella well done and dan well done for your efforts in, in getting bella on the on the page um ram taking out take money out of super for a first home deposit what do you reckon i think it's one of those things that sounds good um but there's there's often unintended consequences so generally speaking um uh economic systems are good at at um reaching points of equilibrium so let me Mm -hmm. unpack that a little bit so it sounds good it's like i can't quite afford a house but if i could tap into my super that would help me get there Mm. well the trouble is is it does the same for everyone else so what happens is that the property market normalizes to that new normal in in the sense that all of a sudden everyone's able to afford a little bit more and guess what house prices go up and and in terms of overall affordability it doesn't really change so i i i don't know if it's actually going to help in terms of of getting you into the property market longer term mm. and at the same time it's it's cutting your legs out from underneath you because at some point when you retire you're going <laughs> to have a hell of a lot less yeah, yeah you know so i i i think super is in, in, in or kiwi saver are just incredible initiatives this forced saving forced investing over very long periods of time is just a really, really, really good idea. Um, it'd be nice to live in a world where we were all sensible <laughs> enough to do that anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, but we're not. And and also you tend to get lots of um, tax incentives and stuff to do it. So it's just a mm-hmm. really, really effective vehicle to, to build and save for your retirement. And yeah. I think as soon as you take money out, even for ostensibly very sensible things like buying a house, um, I, I don't know if that's something that you want to interrupt, particularly if 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 the the problem it's trying to solve it doesn't really solve it. Yeah. I don't know. What what do you think? Yeah, I think I agree, mate. I think um, the problem with so well, I mean, as as always, I say this regularly. There's a maths answer and there's a there's a there's a behavioural answer, right, or or a real world answer. So mathematically, here's the thing. Let's say you've got. I don't know how old Dan is. Let's say he's got 50 grand in, in KiwiSaver. And then, of course, we can't give you personal advice, mate, as, as with all of our listeners, but um, just to use, use a, a simple example, you've got 50 grand in there and you're 25, right? Picking a number. Now, Andrew, you and I have talked a few times about the potential expected returns, but let's use the market historical returns just for fun because it makes my life easier and the maths easier. If you're, if you're yep. 25 and you're going to retire at 67, you've got 42 years left of compounding. 
Okay. Now, if you use the rule of 72 and you get 10%, now that means you're doubling your money every seven years. You can guess I've used them, those numbers carefully because that means you can double your money six times in 42 years between 25 and 67. Now, six times doubling doesn't take 50 grand to 300,000. It's not six times. It's six doubles. So do it with me. The first time, 50 goes to 100, then to 200, then to 400, then 800,000, then 1.6 million, then $3.2 million. And that's the power of compounding right there. And that's exactly why... You should do your absolute level best not to take money out of long-term savings accounts, whether they're super KiwiSaver, your own personal savings. Do your best not to take those money out before you have to because if you buy a house, and you will at some point, until you're going to live in that house or a version of those houses, a house, some house, until you die. Um, and so that money's actually not going to help you. It's going to help you get a home, which is great, and you should have one, but you're not going to get the value of that compounding. Now, maybe your house grows at the same rate. Maybe it doesn't. That's a different question. I probably can't for reasons that Andrew and I have discussed before. Um, but even if it did, you'd have to sell it to get the money out versus the 50 grand that becomes 3.2 million, arguably, potentially, hypothetically, to be really clear, there's just, you know, just spitballing some numbers here. But if you've got $3 million in super at 67, that's a pretty good nest egg. And disrupting that to own a house, exceptional. I think it's a tough mathematical deal to do. Now, if that's the only way you can own a house and owning a house is important to you and there's no other possible solution, I guess I can understand why you might be tempted to do it and I probably wouldn't even argue strongly against you doing it. If, if this is literally the, the, the one shot in the locker and your circumstances are such that you couldn't possibly save for another couple of years to get that house or for some other reason, I could absolutely understand it. Uh, but the, as I said, the interrupting that compounding really, really hurts if you do it too quickly. Mm. Is that fair, mate? Yep. Yeah, yeah, it is. It, it's it's it all comes back to sort of delayed gratification, right? It's yeah. it's yeah. That, that you look at your super balance, you think, oh man, what could I do with that money um, yeah, exactly. now? But it's more a question of <laughs> leave what, it alone. What money will, <laughs> yeah, it, it's 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 more about what's the sort of uh, net present value of that. I mean, what yeah. what are you what are you um, ruining to to get that? So I mean, it, yeah. it, these are generalizations, as you as you've rightly pointed out. There will be exceptions to the rule in some cases yeah. where it makes an imminent amount of sense. But for I, I, I but I do come back to that. It's a bit like a lot of the initiatives we've had here in Australia to sort of get people yeah. into uh, into housing. Well, just it just pushes the price up, and you're kind of back to where you started. Well, it's it, it yeah. just it, yeah. You know what I mean? And some people might argue that, yeah, but, well, what's the difference? If I'm putting it into housing, I'm still going to get long-term compounding on that. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. true. Um, you will. Although I think history and a lot of data would suggest that you won't get the same kind yeah. of return. I actually sent out a yeah. tweet. I don't know if you saw this <laughs> on, um, uh, during the week because property's in, in, in the news a lot lately because we've, we've really come off the base and, you know, the strongest rates of growth or whatever. And it's just, mm. It really prompted me to think, actually, I, are we actually back above the highs that we were in 2017? It turns out, and actually, no, we're not in most capitals. And when you go back over time, you're looking at a 2.6% uh, compound return over five years in Australia. This is the, from the ABS's Residential Property Price Index. It's 3.7% over the last decade. And if you go all the way back to where the series started uh, in 2003, it's a 4.3% return. Now, 4.3%, let's call it five, versus maybe a 10% um, that mm -hmm. you can get in, in the market. And and on Friday's podcast, I said that maybe 10% is maybe not what you could expect in the next 10 years. But, you know, going very, very long term, like the, the difference between five and 10% is so massive over a 42-year period as to be, you know, it, it's much more than double, put it that way. So mm -hmm. I, I, would, I, would, I, would, I would consider all of that. I like it, man. I like it. Uh, of course, as we've said, you know, future returns are hard to, hard to guesstimate. Uh, my, my general view is as long as you're going to be contributing to super as well as um, buying a house, you can, you can do both, you should. Uh, and sure. you know, no one likes to be told, hey, wait a bit longer, but I reckon probably uh, a decent idea. All right, here's a question from Mick. Yep. He says, hey, Scott, I'm a fairly new listener. I'm a 28-year-old healthcare employee and academic that is stereotypically financially oblivious. <laughs> I'll take your word for that, Mick. I, I, I will assume that's true. Um, but make, uh, good on you for, for working in the healthcare system and being an academic. That sounds pretty cool. I'm enjoying learning a few things, he says. Thank you. And turning my initial impression of the stock market from trading to holding. Awesome, mate. Another win for us. I love the idea of picking a stock that you understand. And I agree that the business is fundamentally going to do well. And of those, uh, and of those for me is the newly listed Booktopia. My problem is, I have no idea how to value the thing. And I don't know if this initial price is anywhere near what it should be. 
I understand if I buy 10% below or above, it won't matter if it, what it's worth in 10 years if my thesis is correct. But I want to make sure it's not 100% off before I buy. Your thoughts? That's from Mick. And then I'm going to mm. I'm going to contextualize for a second. Um, we, uh, you know, we've we've talked about many many times on the podcast, both with your first and most recent iteration, and docs in between. That you know, while we don't want to pay just any price, uh, the chance that you're right that a dollar forty one is a better price than a dollar fifty five or a dollar twenty four is is unlikely to be true. And that if in ten years time it's a fifteen dollar stock, the price you pay, of course, kind of matters by definition. Like the, you know, more, more more money is more money. But but getting the general direction and growth story right is probably more important than worrying about a few percentage points either way. Not, I mean, you can extrapolate that forever, and it's not. We're not saying buy it for nothing or infinity. There, there are limits, of course. But generally speaking, if your if your valuation is roughly right, that's more important than if it's exactly right and missing out. Buffett famously lost eight billion dollars uh, by not paying two cents more per share for Walmart shares back in the day. For example, it cost him eight billion dollars because he didn't do the deal. So. Those are some of the examples of why we say, yes, of course, price matters, but don't get too cute on absolute valuations. But mm. um, so that's just for context for you and for others who are listening uh, in terms of the conversation I've had before. The question, of course, Mick saying is, okay, I get that, doesn't matter as much, but am I even directionally right? Am I even getting the, the broad idea right? How much should I pay for a business like Booktopia? What do you reckon? Mm. We went down this rabbit hole last week. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I guess I, I would... Uh, yeah, we did, but just the, the valuation one is it comes up all the time for good reason because we often yeah. sort of say, and not just us. I mean, any any um, investor for a while that's been doing it for a while, which is you know, it matters it matters what you pay, and you got to pay mm-hmm. a sensible price. But the, the logical question then is, well, what's a sensible price? <laughs> and then <Yeah>. that's <laughs> a huge question. It's a huge yeah. question. We it's something that that we can define perfectly, but we can't ever calculate perfectly. Mm. And, and very intelligent people with very sensible assumptions can come to wildly different conclusions. So it's, yeah. it's always going to be a guess, right? Yeah. It, but but, but I, I think what you, what you really want to do... It, actually, I'll go back a further step. I, I, would, I would say whatever approach you take, mm. just the very act of thinking through it is going to put you in a better nice. position, yeah, regardless yeah. of what, what figure you come at. Because it's going to force you to think about, oh, okay, well... What kind of growth do I expect in terms of profit yeah. and 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 revenue? What kind of multiple do I need to ex- uh, do I need the market to sort of be at, at at the terminal point for this to make sense? So it's and and, it, and it's also um, so th- so there is huge value in just the exercise, even if even if what you get out of it is going to be wrong. I've also said too that you don't have to settle on a single figure here. You could come at it a, 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 a myriad of different ways, and and just sort of. Uh, uh, t- ask yourself what needs to sort of happen, or what what happens. What does value look like if this is the kind of growth? What what does value yeah. look like if it's much better than that? And you can sort of you can trace out a, a variety of scenarios, and it's going to give you a, mm-hmm. a range there with which with which to to operate. And I know mm-hmm. you've said before, and I have as well. You can also. Um, do sort of a reverse valuation, which basically says, let's assume that the market price is bang on perfect to the ac- actual real, true intrinsic value. What yeah. does that imply about growth? And do I yeah. think that that makes sense? Which was which was my argument against Afterpay, which we spoke about a few weeks ago. It's just sort of like, well, assuming it's true, this is kind of what you need to see happens. And so then you can mm-hmm. sort of say, well, is is that a reasonable expectation? And if it doesn't happen, what's sort of the downside? So, right, right. Um, it's it's really hard to do, and it's really hard to do, particularly in a verbal format, um, because it's a very number heavy kind of exercise. But I would say that that generally right is far better than specifically wrong. I would I would. In, in the, I don't, I'm not familiar with Booktopia. Um, mm. I haven't. I haven't looked at it. Um, but I, I just brought up some figures. Then the quarterly revenue was up 53. percent mm. um, You know, they look like they're growing pretty strongly. Um, uh, I can see why he'd be interested in it. Um, but just d- g- ask yourself. I think a really useful exercise for me, and I've often, I've actually transitioned to this approach more and more over time. Is is just to sort of say, well, what do I think earnings are going to be like in five years' time? You know, and and I can probably just take what they've got now and grow that by a certain percentage amount. What's a reasonable multiple on that? You can sort of say, mm. well, you know, maybe maybe for a fast-growing company, a PE of twenty is 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 far from optimistic. Yeah. Cal- multiply the PE and the earnings together. Well, that gives you a target price. 
and then just discount that back by the rate of return you want. So if you want 10% per year, <laughs> just divide by 1.1 for, for five years and that gives you a valuation. That's really rough and ready, really rough and ready. But the nice thing about it is you've only got two assumptions you need to make and you can and you can play around with those two different assumptions to see what range yep. makes sense. And, and if the market price is at all sort of below that and again as to your point you don't want to get hyper specific on it mm. then then i think you're in a, in a in a good spot um i don't know does that answer the question i look i think it does but i think it doesn't and I, i'm gonna i'm gonna just what was implicit in your comment and any, any comments i'd give are the experience of blokes who've been doing this for a few years because the implied return or the discounted cash flow, you know, calculations or, you know, just if I buy one point one for five years, that, that makes kind of absolute sense to me. But I can also imagine someone who's like, well, I don't even know what that means. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hard thing to do to, I think you, so firstly, you're exactly, like you're 100% exactly right. Um, trying to translate that for people who are new investors is, is the really, really difficult thing because how much yeah. should I pay? What sort of growth should I expect? What sort of discount rate should I want? What sort of growth rate, you know, those are the questions yeah. that it's are really, really hard to answer, and and they. I, I still struggle. Like but can I just say, for, go on. Just just for the record, too, I, I would yeah. say having done it for years, I still find it super hard. Yeah, right. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like right. it, it, it yeah, doesn't. Yeah. You know, it doesn't. It it's, it gets easier, but it's always hard. Yeah. It's always because implicit in our answer are things like benchmarking, right? So we we, we you and I know that an, that a PE of about fifteen to sixteen is about average. Right, and so if we mm-hmm. see a P of thirty, that feels expensive. A P of ten looks cheap, and we know to also ask, mm. well, hang on, is it expensive for a reason? Is it cheap for a reason? Um, mm. So those kind of things are really, really challenging for for a new investor to look at and go, how how do I pick a price that seems reasonable for that? Broadly, yep. the um, so so I would add just so again, you're one hundred percent right. I'll add to that just try and contextualize a little bit. Firstly, I would say. Knowing that a P of 15-ish is about average, give or take, and it doesn't really matter that sometimes 16, sometimes 18, but like it's close enough to average to be useful for this conversation. If you're paying a lot more than that, PE-wise, you want a lot more growth and you want it for a lot longer. And again, I'm going to be deliberately vague here because there's no absolute numbers, um, but I'm going to say, you know, if you're if you're paying a P of 30, that's twice the market price or the average market price, you want a business that's growing at least twice as fast as the average market, like and, and probably more mm-hmm. than that. If you, and, you want, and you need to make sure it's possible, right? So to your point, um, Mick, about Booktopia, the question might simply be, how long do you think it can grow at, at particularly fast rates? And if you don't know the answer, that's okay not to know, by the way. But, you know, so if I took a quick look, mate. The, the NPAT or the profit after tax for Booktopia for the first half was about three million bucks. It's only mm. listed for a short time. Let's say it doubles that for the full year. Just pick a number. It's trading at 50 times earnings. So mm. that's four-ish times the average a bit less um, it's going to have to grow at a lot at a big rate for a long time now probably can because the previous year's profit was nothing so trying to trying it's to work a low out base. growth rates for super super exactly trying to work out growth rates yeah. for super super young companies is really hard because they're going from tiny numbers to, to still small numbers but you know in theory their, their profit's gone up you know <laughs> 20 times um, mm. uh, but you know is it really a 20, it's not going to keep growing at 20 times profit right so that those things are difficult um, but that, that's the sort of stuff that you kind of need to have a think about when you're thinking about some of this um, this growth. And so we, how long can it grow? How fast can it grow? How big can it be? The question I ask for Booktopia, just to kind of cut through this, is how big can Booktopia be eventually, do you reckon? Twice the size? Mm. Three times the size? Five times the size? How long might it take to get there? And once you can do that, that gives you a reasonable sense of some sort of growth rate. So let's say I can double, and I can double in five years. Okay, that's an average growth rate of about 14% a year, which is mm. good. Not spectacular, but but good. Better than Woolies will do. Better than the Commonwealth Bank will do. So good. Um, does justify P of fifty times? Or if the, if if it can only ever double and not grow bigger than that, that's getting tough. If now people say this about Amazon, by the way, I own shares um, in in its first few years. How, how much of it can it possibly be? Twenty years later, it's still growing at twenty percent a year. Now, if that if that's if that's Booktopia, then this price is cheap. The mm. hardest part of investing is trying to work out how long it can grow for, and how big it can get. And, and there are no simple answers. It's really simple for Telstra, really simple for CBA in terms of there's a small range of outcomes, right? We talked about that on Friday. CBA will grow yep. at, at GDP plus or minus a couple of percent over the long term, just because mm. it already mm. is the system. The banking sector is the, the entire system. They might grow and lose a little bit of market share from time to time, but broadly, you can assume it's pretty pretty finite. Um, a business that, a APA group that, that owns some gas pipelines, the amount of gas is gonna grow probably steadily, probably slowly, Okay, you can you can have a reasonable assumption of that. Amazon, <laughs> um, 
some of the businesses, some of the, some of the cool tech afterpay, how, how fast does that grow? For how long? How much is that worth? Those are the really, really mm. difficult questions to ask uh, and answer. And so I don't have any easy answers for you, Mick. I would say um, Bookshop has done a really nice job of growing. I don't really have a strong view personally, even though, so liking and knowing the business is one thing, which is the point of your question. But if you ask me, I, I'm, I don't think I've ever, I've ever one thing from Booktopia. I think I'm an Amazon customer, probably because I own shares. Um, but if you say to me, look, how much bigger can Booktopia get? I really don't have a view. And because I don't have a view, I probably wouldn't want to put a, a recommendation of buy, hold, or sell on Booktopia because I just really don't know. Amazon, if it was only ever a bookseller, would be much, much smaller than it is today. Um, can Booktopia double? Can it double again? Uh, I don't know. How, how much of e-commerce is left to, oh, sorry, how much is left for e-commerce to grab out of physical retail? Amazon's already there. There's other online booksellers already. How much more growth is there in in, in online books in Australia, um, let alone yeah. Booktopia's share of that? So I, I probably sound a little bit sceptical. I probably am. I don't know how much, honestly, long-term growth they've got left. But if there's enough, um, if it can double and double again profit-wise, well, all of a sudden, the $3 million half-year half profit, $6 million full-year profit, doubles and doubles again. That's $24 million. You're paying $300 million for a $24 million profit business. That's... What's that, mate? Twelve times earnings, something like that. I mean, that's that, that's not that's not super. That's not super expensive, right? If it can do it, mm. uh, but you have to believe that it can do that, and you've got to probably work out how and why, given the size of the market. And that's probably the question. So, is that a reasonable yeah, addition? Uh, yeah, it is. It's so, um, it's hard if we haven't said that. <laughs> yeah. I, again, I, I, it's hard because I'm I'm not prepared in having looked closely at Big Booktopia, but one of the things. I think when it comes to valuation is that, you know, um, quality covers a lot of sins. Yeah. Yep. And and you've mentioned Amazon. So this is, a, it's increasingly a global marketplace, global yeah. competition. Yeah. So my question would be, so a lot, I'm, I've got, I've, if you look at my stuff on Strongman, I've got plenty of pre-profit early stage companies, you know, right. big total addressable markets, you know, so I'm not afraid of doing that, that kind of stuff, but, but at least I like to think with a lot of those companies, I feel as though they've got an edge over mm. other people that are mm. doing it, mm. and that when mm. the race is run, they've got a good chance of sort of being at, at, at the head of the pack. My right. my first initial knee jerk reaction with something like Booktopia is it's just like, well, as a as a consumer, what how how can they offer me a better range, a better mm. price, more convenience mm. than than the biggest player in the world yeah. who's who's happy who's happy to, to operate at lower margins because they've got much bigger scale. And, maybe, yeah. and, and let me say, there's probably a, maybe there's a really good explanation for that. Maybe there is, but that's, that's the first thing that I would want to dig into. Mm-hmm. It's like, mm-hmm. yep, they've, they've had some good success. That's really great. But, but can they continue to do that when they're up yeah. against some, some huge players? I just, I don't know. I don't know. And the other thing, the final thing I would say is often, and very often if it's me, when I start going down the rabbit hole here, I actually get to a point where it's not like a he, I reach a, 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 a conviction one way or the other. I just I just mm. land on I don't know. Yeah, and that's, that's okay. Hard, yeah, that's okay. And 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 there's plenty of stuff that I've missed, and I don't feel that bad about because even though mm. history sort of suggests, oh, I could have, should have, would have. I mean, <laughs> I just wasn't confident. And and if there's yeah. if there's something that's too hard, just let it pass. It's like Buffett says, yeah, wait for the fat pitch. Wait for the thing that you can sort of go, well, actually, I've, I've got a huge amount of confidence that this is going to be much bigger and better in the future. And I just, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. With Booktopia, at least a very peripheral, peripheral initial glance, I don't know how they're going to be able to, to, to do that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. It, I, I'm, I, I'll only... We need to move on, but the only thing I will say is I don't think you necessarily need to believe that Booktopia beats Amazon. You just have to believe it can coexist at some size and scale with online oh, competitors, true. plural. Yep. And yep. But in that, if you have got a bigger, more dominant competitor who is taking share, you also got to be reasonable about how long it might be before Amazon starts to actually crimp your business and it starts to decline again. So, you know, if Amazon's mm. going to win in 20 years um, and... You know, if it's going to be for whatever, and now may not, Mick may have a very different view. I, I, I don't. I, I think Amazon wins this race, but he may have a different view, which is fine. But the end of the state needs to be okay. You get certain size, then when the market saturates, so think about the banks, right? The banks were great businesses for thirty years because they bought other banks, they incre- increased economies of scale, um, they cut costs, they aggregated and grew. And the supermarkets were the same. Bullish and coal, same thing. I, I started working. Um, sorry, I started working when I, well, when I started working at at. Uh, 
grocery companies. Um, Woolies was a state-based operation, so was Coles. Uh, they had various different market shares per state. And in fact, in the early 80s, Woolies market share and Coles market share together was only something like 25 or 30%. Now, now it's 85%, mm. and that growth in market share has been great. But what got mm. them here is not going to continue to... You can't keep growing at that rate because there's no more business to make up. And so once you get to mm. a steady state market share, then you've got to say, okay, what happens next? So I, don't, I think Booktopia can continue to coexist with Amazon. I think Amazon's expansion and growth potentially risks the growth rate for Booktopia. And so the question of how long can it grow is the one that I've got a really open question on. It's just simply what, what can it actually do from here? If, if you think it can grow for 10 years at 50% a year, then hey, buy the stairs. Buy, buy them now and you know, buy them more. Um, but you've got to have a really strong conviction, not, not that you want it to be true, not that you hope it's true. Many, plenty of people buy Booktopia because it's Australian, which is great, but... That, that's not going to make it successful in and of itself if the rest of us buy from Amazon anyway. Um, so just, just be a little bit careful of how much, how long it can grow for. I do think they can coexist, so I'm not worried about that particularly. Um, but the, the amount of space, the, the, the available space for Booktopia to grow into depends a lot on what else happens with the competition elsewhere, including Amazon. Yeah. Man, let's yeah. Move on. I, I think that's so, all fair. Go on. go on. Yeah, I agree. No, that's it. No, I'm, I'm happy. Let's move on. All right. Let's move on to a question from Riz. Hi, Scott. As a recent share advisor sign-up, I've been listening to your podcast and loving it. Awesome. Not sure where you get your questions from, but I thought I would try one here. There you go. It worked. Actually, he says, my name is Chris. Ignore my profile. There you go. My profile name. My name is Chris. And I was wondering what you thought about the CAPE ratio and the fact it's currently so high in the US. I get hesitant mm. to buy shares that aren't already cheap as there's a lot of talk out there of a historical crash. Now, mm. do you want to explain CAPE or will I, mate? Yeah, I'm happy to do it. So this was uh, a metric invented by a guy called Peter Schiller, a US economist, um, super Robert. smart guy, got a lot of good books. Uh, what did I say, Peter? Did Peter. I say Peter? Peter. <laughs> Robert. Bob, Robert's brother, Peter. Bob, Bob, to, Bob to his friends. Um, <laughs> and and what he does, he, it's kind of the PE, which a lot of people will be familiar with, so price divided by earnings, mm -hmm. and you can aggregate that over the whole market, but it's cyclically adjusted in that rather than using the most recent earnings, it looks, mm -hmm. I think, over the last 10 years. Um, so it smooths that out a little bit more. And it's a really interesting measure because historically it's been pretty good at at not... There's no thing out there that, that times the market. It just does, doesn't exist. But generally speaking, when it's been when it's been high historically, future returns from that point have, have been difficult. When it's low historically, mm -hmm. the future returns from that point tend to be good. And so, yeah, it's it's really high at the moment. And and for a lot of for all of those reasons, a lot of smart people are sort of saying, "Geez, the market's expensive." All of that being said, and we've we've touched on this multiple times mm -hmm. in the last mm -hmm. few weeks, is that. Mm -hmm. That you can actually rationalise that to some degree, yeah. and you can rationalise it to some degree for, for, for two major reasons. One is the ridiculously low rates of interest that are <laughs> out there, yeah, which, which make it which 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 make a historical comparison a little bit more difficult. So when it was previously at these levels, interest rates were much higher, so mm. it's not exactly an apples with apples kind of thing. And we've also got this phenomenon too of where we've got companies that are growing at much faster rates uh, as well, mm -hmm. particularly in, in, in the, the tech sector. And, and uh, I think the, the NASDAQ is, what, 20% something per year over the last five mm -hmm. years, which has actually been driven by a lot of fundamental growth there as well. So, mm -hmm. so, so the, while I agree that it looks very high and for tr traditional value investors, it's going to be very hard to get your head around, there are, there are it, it actually might not be that high if... You think rates will remain lowish for an extended period of time, and if you think the average pace of growth uh, is is going to be higher, um, and then I would also say within all of that is that for someone who is a stock picker, um, it's less relevant because this is something that's looking at the market, and you've got a whole bunch of crap in there, and you've got a whole bunch of great stuff in there. Within that average, you'll find some stuff where where you know the, the a particular company's cape. Won't won't necessarily be be that mm. that um, high historically overall. So mm. even though when markets overall look expensive, I'm I'm a big believer in that. There's always opportunity that's out there. Sometimes it's much harder yeah. to find than others. Yeah. But um, and then finally, sorry, I know I'm going on a lot a little bit here. Is that and you mentioned this a lot, and it's 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 it, it bears repeating, which is that there there are always people out there that that have compelling arguments. 
uh, over um, markets being exceptionally high and that yeah, the next right. crash is coming around the corner. And if, generally speaking, if you'd followed that, you end, the opportunity cost <laughs> ends up being pretty extreme. Yeah. So, so what yeah. it's, what's, what, what's better is, is usually for a long-term investor is just to accept that you're going to suffer those drawdowns along the way and invest yeah. anyway. Um, yeah. But yeah, I've rambled for enough. What do you think? I think you're right. I think uh, I'll take your last point first, just for Chris. The whole historical crash thing. So there's, you know, will markets turn down? Yes, absolutely. You're better off riding the wave, absolutely. When you say historical crash, people are like, oh, the market's going to crash 80, 90%. They've been, I've actually, I've got, a, I found a, a whole lot of those at one point. I wrote an email about it probably a year or so ago. Um, it, it tends to be the case that uh, if you look at the way those those things happen, that there is, yeah, people have been saying it's 1970-something, right? It hasn't happened. Um, we had a COVID crash. It bounced back within a year. Um, so, you know, the, the big 90% crash, everything's going to hell in a handbasket stuff is just, you know, eventually, will someone be right? I guess maybe by sheer law of averages, right? Uh, one, you know, one of 1,000 chance happens once in every 1,000 goes. So, you know, eventually the, the really, really low probability stuff comes true. Does that mean you should avoid it? No, because as Andrew's already said, there's more money lost avoiding the next crash than in the next crash. That's a Morgan Hauslism, which I've stolen. Um, so, you know, that, that's, that's, really, that's really important. In terms of the CAPE ratio, here's the problem I have. I, I'm, I, it, my, it, my fault, if I have one, is that I can see the same difference size of everything all the time. And so I'm always happy to give you the on one hand, on the other hand kind of answers. Um, the, the, challenge for the, the challenge for PEs right now, price earnings ratios right now in general, is people are saying, hey, the price earnings ratio have never been higher. And that's apparently historically true. And it's reasonable for someone to say, ah, I know what that means. That means therefore shares are expensive, therefore blah, blah, blah. What they don't say, because I don't believe it, don't want to believe it, don't think it's right or don't agree with it or think it's temporary, any of those is true, is companies have never grown faster in history than they are right now. And that is because of the changing nature of business. If you were in the steel mill business in the 30s, and you had a W output, you, you built a new steel mill and it cost took five years to do and it slowly built up because you found new, new steel customers in the local area and maybe you went to the next state and you got a couple of customers there. And so you, had, you spent an absolute squillion dollars building a new steel mill and it took you five years to fill it up with work. And then you had to build another one to grow your business by another 50%. You had to build another two steel mills. Okay, so that takes another 10 years and you do that. And so growth happens. The general electrics of the world, the, the big conglomerates grew just slowly grinding away, did a fantastic job growing. These days, if Google wants to double its business, it just has to find more eyeballs and more advertisers. And you've got a global mm. stage and effectively an almost costless marketing tool, which is email slash Google AdWords slash whatever. You can, you can double your business tomorrow. And by the way, when you do it, it costs nothing. There's no inventory. You don't have to build a new steel mill. Google might throw another couple of servers in a, you know, in a server warehouse in Turkmenistan or New Zealand or Africa or, you know, like, it, 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 you know, the, the cost of the incremental business is just, it's minuscule. Think about Microsoft when it sells another version of Office 365. When you buy that for the first time, they don't make a new, they don't make new CDs anymore. <laughs> they literally send you a, a code, activation code, and you put it in the thing and, and it's there. So the ability to grow really fast has never ever been so possible. And so when you look at a PE ratio, you say, you know, price of earnings is high. That would normally be expensive if growth was the same. But if you look at the growth, I mean, think about the big top five businesses in the US right now. I don't know what they are in order, but effectively, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon. Berkshire Hathaway, and what's the other one, mate? What have I missed? Don't know. Google. Is, there you go. Um, Google. Yeah. You know, th th those businesses uh, over the last year grew at 20 plus percent each. And they're mm. the biggest company. So, you know, if, if, if the PE is 20 and they're growing at 8%, that's a problem. If the PE is 20 and they're growing at 20%, that's much less of a problem. So, I have a lot mm. of sympathy for people who say history tends to, well, they say history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. So, I get that. Yep. And I get why we should be careful. But also, you know, the old, when the facts change, I change my mind. Are we in a new normal? Oh, I, I don't like doing the whole step change, new normal stuff, but does the economy today look very different to the economy in 1980? You betcha. Um, and so, you know, I, I have, some, have some sympathy for it. So I'm not as keen to do things on historical PEs anymore because I do think the nature of business has changed. Yes, there are still conglomerates. Yes, there are still steel mills. But the biggest businesses these days, yes, by market cap, but just by sheer growth and size and scale. Amazon's quarterly sales, I don't even know what the numbers are, but they're tens of billions of dollars a quarter. Um, and they're growing at 20%. Tells you, I think, a lot about the changing nature of business and why you'd want to pay a bit more for a faster growing business given the choice. It makes perfect sense. You would pay more for a faster growing business. I'll just add one know. thing before we move on. Yeah, no, I please. think you're right. But, but, but and, and, and that's, that's the argument for it. 
Um, however, within that, you see a lot of uh, investors and companies sort of rationalizing mm-hmm. things on that way. Yep. And sort of like, while that is true for Amazon and Google and the rest of it, it definitely isn't true for a lot of other companies as well. Yes, exactly. So you sort of, you, you know, so it's sort of like, it's kind of a case by case kind of basis, which is, which was sort of alluded alludes to what I said before about the market yeah. versus specific stocks. So, yeah, so you yeah, do see definitely. a lot of, particularly in Australia, right? I know Doc used to mention this as well. Some of the tech valuations we have are insane. And people go, oh, yes, but look, oh, people said that about Amazon. Well, that's true. But Amazon mm-hmm. kind of is the exception to the rule. Um, and, and not every company is going to grow at those rates, you know, almost by definition. It's just not, not possible. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So, so yeah. Take it take it on a case by case basis, but I, I do I do gen, for the record I do generally think that on average things are pretty expensive mm-hmm. right now. I'm finding it more difficult today than I have in the past to find value. Mm-hmm. Um, so I definitely have sympathy for that view, but yeah, t- take it on a case by case basis and just don't sweat it too much if you have a high degree of confidence in the growth. There you go, I like it. Get more motley fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple m. Let's move on, mate, to a question from for a comment more from this. I I, I was going to make an outlandish statement. This will be the last time we talk about it, but I, I don't want to because I might have to break my own rules. But I think this was the last time we talk about investment bonds. Um, we had a question about it a couple of weeks ago. If you haven't listened, shame on you. You should be listening every week. Uh, but Gary weighed in with some thoughts on why investment bonds can be worthwhile. And I, I kind of thought I would share this because, again, we like to be balanced. We like to be fair. And Gary makes some good points. He says, hi, Scott. Just sort of weighing on the investment bond discussion. I also thought long and hard about capital gains tax versus company tax, and I thought I would point out some of the other benefits about the bond structure possibly not considered. We always like that. Gary says, first, yeah. the bond is designed to be maintenance-free every month with a direct, uh, a direct debit automatically deducting your set amount and buying shares without brokerage. He says, well, you pay from some brokerage and the fees, but not every transaction will be minimal with the scale of the bond. In other words, he's saying, yeah, you're, pay, you're paying a fee, but you're not paying a per-trade brokerage, and you're putting money in every mm-hmm. month. So that, that brokerage is kind of absorbed. Second, he says, with the bond being capital gains tax-free after 10 years, it's a great incentive not to get the jitters and withdraw it during a downturn, giving compounding That's a chance true. to do its thing. He's absolutely right. Yep. And last year, as you always say, the less active an investor is, the better their return. And the bond is basically set and forget no matter what bills come that month, you're unlikely to cancel the direct debit. So your kid's investment keeps growing. All very true, Gary. Mm. Absolutely true. Can't argue with any of that. Yep. Um, I will say you no. can direct debit into things like a Vanguard ETF, for example. So there are other ways of using direct debit to your advantage. Um, and of course, but the, your point being the 10 year, I, I actually like that. I like the, the, the um, behavioral psychologists call it a pre-commitment device. If you know you can't take it after 10 years, you don't because you're not allowed to. Um, I, I yep. sometimes wish uh, individual companies would, um, uh, individual brokerage would, would, <laughs> would put the same restriction on us. Um, I think we'd all be much better off this. So you can do it, but you can't do it for 10 years. We think much more, well, you know, well, it's Buffett's time, right? Close the doors. Um, if we couldn't sell for 10 years, we think more carefully about what we bought in the first place. So I quite yep. like that. I quite like the concept. Thanks, Gary. Yep. Uh, yeah, good from, points. I got your question from Mark. Um, Mark says, hi, Scott. Enjoy your podcast. Have been unable to find an email to send you a question. That's all right. You hit me up on Instagram for the look of it. Uh, we'd like to hear your thoughts on an upcoming podcast regarding sharesies and upcoming available availability in Australia. Is it a good thing? So sharesies is another one of these proliferating um, online brokerage options, trying to keep brokerage low. I don't remember their brokerage fees, but they're really super low. Um, you can invest tiny amounts at a time. So again, one of these businesses trying to democratize investing. We talked about this a little bit on Friday. Um, for full disclosure, not that I need to disclose a commercial relationship, but I did appear on a webinar for them last Thursday, I think it was. Uh, so Thursday before, so eight days ago, uh, we just had a chat about the Australian market. No no money change hands, no no deals done, no no incentive, nothing else. Uh, they just say, hey, we want to review about the Australian market for our New Zealand viewers. Is that okay? I said, sure, I can do that. So just, just for disclosure, I have talked to those guys in that context, but no um, no reason otherwise to like or dislike them. Andrew, your thoughts on sharesies? Not uh, too familiar um, with them in particular, but um, yeah, there's a lot of them. I came across a few others the other day as well. It's, it's such an interesting thing. I generally think um, as an industry, brokerage is tending toward, trending towards zero. <laughs> um, so it's 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 it's... It's less about the brokerage and more about the features, I think, increasingly mm-hmm. so. Um, but look, I just I just think of all the things that you need to expend brain power on, you know, wh- whether you're paying 
15 bucks, 10 bucks, 8 bucks, 5 bucks for brokerage is, is just mm. not even a rounding error in the grand scheme yeah, of things. Yeah, totally. Agreed. You know, if you're the kind of person who's doing 10 trades a day, well, you're not doing it mm. right anyway. And that, that's that's where it does start to matter. And for those who are who are far who are who are trading far less, it's just it's just not going to make a difference. So I I wouldn't sweat yeah. it too much. I mean, I you look for someone that's reliable. I like I like things generally which are uh, chess sponsored and stuff. So you actually mm-hmm. own the shares; mm-hmm. they're not held in a, 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 a custodian arrangement. Yeah. Agree. Um, you know, uh, look, I, I pay way too much for brokerage, um, and, and I do it just because I'm a lazy bugger, and there's a lot of inertia there. But again, it just—it's yeah. just—it's—it's it, it's not a dial mover for, for me. Yeah. I, I'm sure if I look back and did all the sums and said, "What would my returns be if I'd paid half the brokerage that I've been paying over the last five years?" <laughs> my portfolio might be half a percent higher than it is today. Yeah. It's—it's. Yeah. It's, so, yeah, I, I don't have a strong opinion on it, other other than you know, if, if you're. And I know, I know the, the 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 listener isn't isn't saying this, so I'm not not trying to put words into their mouth. But I, frankly, I wouldn't I wouldn't stress about it too much. They they might be good. Check them out. Um, just just choose carefully because because you yeah. will whatever you do land on, you will suffer the inertia that we all yeah, have with bank accounts right. and brokerage. So yeah, whatever it is you choose, you're probably yeah, going to yeah. be there forever because um, it's yeah. just a hassle to change. But but you know, tick off the big things. As I say, um, you want to make sure that they're around. You want to make sure that they're I, I think chess sponsored. You want to make sure that the brokerage is reasonable. You want to make sure that you get a few nice bells and whistles that are they're in there. It's always nice mm-hmm. to get some free research and all the rest of it. Um, but yeah. Focus on what you're actually buying rather than what you're buying it through. It's funny you say that about being there forever. I've been with Commonwealth Bank now for or Comsec for more than 20 years, and I was originally a TD Waterhouse customer. I think I said this last time. And just as you were talking, there it occurred to me that some some someone in a, on a spreadsheet at Comsec went, "How much will we pay per customer?" Well, let's assume they've got an average life of two or three years, and like 20 years later, I'm still there. So they they've <laughs> they well and truly made a lot of money off me when they paid TD Waterhouse whatever they paid per customer to buy their business. Um, I've been around for 20 years. I don't imagine they use 20 years as their uh, their average life per customer. So I've certainly I've certainly made some money for for Comsec on that purchase and probably cost TD Waterhouse some money in the deal. Um, look on sharesies, they seem like good guys. Um, got what I say, guys? Um, what's the word these days? We say asexually. What do we say with that? Non-sexually, non-gender um, specific. Non, guys, non-gender guys. specific, I guess. There you yeah. go. Yeah. Guys, guys being a an inclusive term. Um, spoke to a couple of them on that webinar. They seem like really good people. I, you know, I have no reason to believe they're doing anything other than trying to do the right thing. Um, they their brokerage is pretty straightforward. They charge half a percent up to three thousand dollars, and then point one on top of that. Um, so really clear, really transparent. I really have I have zero issue with any of these guys having cheap brokerage. My big issue with any of them, including these guys, is just the honestly. I think some of them probably gamify it too much, and I think remember, of course, that for the most part, your broker's incentives matter. So if you're with a broker who makes money every time you trade, what are they going to want you to do more of? Yep, trade. Mm. I'm not saying about shares. Mm. I don't. I don't have a view on what they're doing or how they're doing it. Um, I'm just saying, generally speaking, the the irony of brokerage is that your brokers aren't paid on how wealthy you get; they are paid on how often you do something. Uh, and that's you know sometimes the same thing, sometimes not. Generally speaking, as per the question before, the the less you trade, probably the better off you're going to be. I think that's statistically probably likely. Uh, and yet, the less I trade, the more less money my broker makes, and the less happy they are. So just just keep that in mind. Again, I, I like the shares. These guys, they seem like good people. Uh, nothing wrong with them, and nothing against them. But or any of them, by the way, plenty of them out there. Uh, just just be just be careful and be thoughtful about if they're making money on trades, they're going to want you to trade. Uh, Hopefully, you know, the new breed are legitimately trying to help us build wealth by making giving us the right way to access it, democratizing it for more people, all that good stuff. And hopefully that's a, that's a net benefit for everybody. And hopefully you can resist the urge to trade more just because it's cheap. Uh, but it also stands to reason, right? If it's 100 bucks a trade, I'd trade less frequently than if it was $2 a trade. Because if I change my mind, the friction of that is like, oh man, I've got to, I've got to pay 100 bucks to sell again. Oh, I'll just hold them. Or I've got to buy, it's going to cost me 100 bucks. Man, if I have to sell, it's going to cost me 200 bucks. I've got to think really carefully before I buy this company as opposed to, mm. no, it costs me nothing. I'll buy it today, sell it tomorrow. I'll buy it back the day after. Who cares? What's the downside? Um, the answer, mm. of course, is actually it's not, it's not the brokerage fee is going to kill you, as Andrew's already said. It's the value of your portfolio. And if you're, if you're incentivized or just simply allowed, <laughs> encouraged, um, if the path is made easier for you to do silly things like overtrade, that's probably bad for your financial health. Bad for your wealth. Yep. Question, mate, from uh, Bradley. Um, hi Scott and Andrew. I've read and reread your. It was an email from me. I read, read and reread your email this week about the big four banks. I sent an email last week. I think it was about. Um, we've probably there's a lot, let's talk about this a lot, Andrew. Just the challenge for the big four banks in growing. Uh, he says I only own CBA and have a small profit. I'm up thirteen percent. 
I don't mind selling them, just where to put it is the harder question. I have about 75% of what I own in CBA. I know it's a lot and it would hurt if it went the wrong way. That's from Bailey. Not so much a question other than a bit of a, a comment, but maybe maybe an implied question like, okay, I can sell some, but what do I do? 75% made in a single stock. I think that's probably more than most people. This yes was uh, good diversification, right? Oh my gosh, that is a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, I should say, Bradley I- could be 22 and he could have invested... $4,000 and, and three grand of that could be CBA as he builds his portfolio and in 10 years time it's going to be a $100,000 portfolio and it won't matter. So there are times yep. when as you're getting started 75% is not a problem but you wouldn't want it to be 75% in a year's time would we mate? No, no, no. It, it, it's it's just too risky. I mean, diversification is one of the only free kicks you get in investing you know right. and it's it's you can have too much of a good thing I've mentioned that before you don't want to be too diversified but when you've got mm. 75% in one stock I mean you, you'll be if it goes really well, you may be the best decision you ever make. But you know, <laughs> if it doesn't, it's really going to uh, cost you. And anything, mm-hmm. anything can happen. Um, so, yep. so I, I would, even though there's a challenge with what to do with that, and I understand that challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think just putting it in cash until you can find something better is is probably a better way. Or if you're worried about just having it in cash, just just. Um, sell down a chunk and put it into a market ETF, at least you'll track along with the average until you find a, a stock that, that you like. It, it's yeah. it's a lot of concentration. Yep, it is, it is. Um, yeah, I think I think that's right. You know, I think we'd say don't have too much of your portfolio in a single stock. I think that we can waive that for an ETF because it is by definition a single security, but it owns- That's all, it's already diversified. shares, right? Exactly. So yeah, different. That, that's, a, that's a really good way to start. If you're adding, and we don't know your circumstances, Bradley, and even if we did, we wouldn't be allowed to give you personal advice because the law doesn't work that way. Um, but generally speaking, yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I, I, I don't, you know, I, I mean, look, if I had to put seventy five percent of my money in Berkshire or Sol Pats, I'd be pretty happy. Um, probably, I probably wouldn't choose to do it, by the way, but I'd be okay with it. Outside that, I can't think of any company I'd want to have seventy five percent of my wealth in. Um, it's just it's just way too risky for, for good and bad reasons, right? Even if it's just even if it just retards your growth over the next five ten years because you've got seventy five percent of your shares in a. Or money in, in shares that aren't going to grow, um, that's certainly going to hurt your total results because of it. And if there is bad news for ComBank for whatever reason, um, that could really meaningfully hurt your results. So yeah, get you, you want to reduce that concentration as quickly as possible. If you're super early in your career and you're adding, then just adding money to other shares will do it for you, and that might be fine. Um, if if you're not, or you're not adding that quickly, then thinking about whether you really want to have that, whether you want to sell. I wouldn't recommend people buy Commonwealth Bank shares. I've said before, if you own them, I think you should sell some. Not you personally, Bradley, but people in general. Because um, you, you don't want to be that concentrated in the first instance. And even if you were, I think that's a, I don't think the returns are that likely to be that high to mean that concentration is even going to give you great returns. Um, I've botched explaining that. But what I mean is, um, you know, if you want to put a lot of money into one stock, you want to make sure that stock's going to be a really big winner. I think the chance of that with CBA are pretty light. So I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be jumping in that one personally. Yeah. All right, and just, just your periodic. Can I just add one very quick thing to you? Yeah, your please periodic do. Yeah, reminder. Yeah. I know I say this all the time, but it's just um, <laughs> say it again. Pe- go people, on. well, pe- people often frame these questions with "Oh, I'm up or down," and yeah, and, that's a good point. I just, I just, and, it, and it's 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 fine. I don't, I'm not having a go, but I just, I would just remind yeah, no. you that that's an irre- irrelevant decision in terms of whether you buy or sell. Yes, there's tax considerations around that, but it's you know whether you're up or down. You've got X dollars in CBA right now. You know, if you blinked into existence today, would would you build your portfolio that way? And and I, yep. I, I would probably say no. So don't don't let those up or down. But people do really, all of us do really dumb things mm-hmm. by by anchoring on that price because we we will tolerate um, uh, things that we otherwise wouldn't buy if we're on a profit because we mm-hmm. think oh it doesn't matter because I bought them so much lower. I was like, well, no, it yeah. does because you've got X dollars today. Um, and likewise, if it goes down, then well, I want to get out, but I just want to make sure it gets back to there before I get out. It just it muddies the thinking. So, so don't yeah. don't let that whether you're up or down, don't let that influence your decision too much. Mm. Good advice, mate. A quick one, just a, a bit of feedback from Callum. He says, "G'day, Scott. Just want to say a big thanks for responding to my question on the podcast a couple of weekends ago. The response and comments from yourself and Ram, great nickname, were as always very insightful and provided me with some valuable and tangible ways on how to manage my growing portfolio." Uh, keep up the great work and great banter, Callum. Thanks, Callum. Really appreciate that, mate. Just thought we'd throw that one in in passing. Mate, back to the Thank next you. question. We got one from uh, Macca, Mark. Hi, Scott and Andrew. I've been mostly out of the market over the last 10 years while we concentrated on paying the house off. Boring, I know, he says. What I've noticed since getting right back into it 
is the massive market downturns off disappointing news, but not devastating news. Two recent examples are Whitehaven Coal and Kogan. Is this a reflection of the amount of inexperienced investors now in the market, or are there more underlying reasons? Interested in your opinion? Cheers, love the show. And that's from Mark. Mate, I reckon, mm. I, I've, I feel like I've seen something similar. I feel like the mm. last few earnings seasons, um, maybe between you kind of leaving the, the podcast and coming back, the, the market responses, the number of 30% moves on bad news and good news, but normally bad news, have seemed to me to be more prevalent and larger than usual. You know, a, ba- a, bad, a bad company result, shares fall 5 10% normally. Occasionally, the, the, the absolute disaster and catastrophe stocks, but that's not normally earnings related. The number of stocks that fell 30% on bad earnings over the past few earnings seasons have been remarkably large. I, I don't know if you have a, mm. a, a particular thought, but it's just, it just... I, I think I think Mark's right. I think there there does seem to be. Uh, I don't, I'm not saying I don't I don't know the cause in experienced investors. By the way, I'd be interested in your thoughts. But I certainly have noticed the same thing as Mark, which is seemingly bigger swings on on bad news. Yeah, I, I've noticed it too. I mean, we we can only guess because we don't know. Um, no yeah. one no one can really know. My guess would be that there's a lot more. Um, inexperienced money in the market when that, I think right. that's been a pretty well reported phenomenon so you've got you've got a lot of people um, uh, trading the market which are perhaps mm. more new to this game and might be a little bit more flighty or I, I don't mm. know mm. Um, having said all of that it's not entirely a bad thing that this is happening um, I managed to pick up some real bargains <laughs> in the last <laughs> year because of, because of that overreaction and it, it's interesting because it, it was it was definitely bad news that came out um right but 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 the reaction was disproportionate to the news and and the news while bad for a given quarter half or whatever to me spoke didn't speak to the longer term earnings generation capacity of 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 the business Uh, erode was a great example of this um and and uh, and just just others so so in a way Selfishly, I, I don't <laughs> mind when that happens. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. What, what, what's your guess? I mean, and I think that's, I think that's right. I think that, and that's in terms of educating our listeners. That's part of it, right? Is we're used to thinking about market falls as being bad and market gains as being good. And if you own the shares, they absolutely are. Um, and if you know, maybe if you don't know shares, mate, rather than be looking to buy them, you might, maybe you felt, might have felt differently about it. I'm not sure, um, but there is there is something to that, right? There is something to I feel better if my shares keep going up, and I feel better if the markets go up because I feel like I'm getting richer, and that's positive. But to your point, if you're if you're an opportunistic buyer, um, if I owned a house, I was looking to buy a second house, uh, and the prices went up, I'd feel good. But if I'm looking to buy that second house, I want prices to fall at least for a, a short amount of time. And I think is that time frame oh, yeah. is different, right? We're not saying we like. We like low share prices forever. <laughs> we love the fact that share prices fall and don't go back up again. You, what you're saying is when the market's overreacting, which is which is literally by definition, you know, the shares fall further than they otherwise should based on the fundamentals of the news, then hey, that's great. If, if a company's worth 10% less but the shares fall 30%, then that's a 20% opportunity going begging, right? We, we're, we can go and buy those shares, make some money, uh, and then in theory, hopefully the share prices recover. So we're not saying we like it when they fall to stay low because that would defeat the purpose. Um, but if, if the market overreacts, if they're offering us a, che- a price that's too cheap and we get to buy, then we should feel pretty good about that, yeah? Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, I should stress too, it's not as though a lot of these companies, I didn't have any money. I mean, I, there's there's a lot of those companies mm-hmm. which I was an existing shareholder in and then they dropped, particularly last year, year ago, right? And yeah. it was just like, wow, man, I, I can I can buy this company, which I actually thought was reasonable value at $2 and now I can buy it at 50 cents. Mm-hmm. Yes, please. And I, it sucked when I looked at my, my brokerage account. But I also know that... It's the whole, you know, short-term voting machine, long-term weighing machine kind of thing. I, yeah, I could right. look at some companies. Explain and just that for think, us, mate. Yeah. So that that was a that was a Benjamin Graham, his sort of Buffett's mentor um, uh, quote, and he's basically saying that it's sentiment drives markets in the short term. So it's just you know mm-hmm. what is, is the market in a positive mood or a negative mood? That's really going to be the dominant thing that drives prices today. But over right. time, it's it's the earnings. And I, I put this challenge out there for anyone. Find me a company who's shown strong and consistent growth in their profits where that has not been reflected in the share price over right. a three to five year Eventually, period. Eventually, right. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't exist. I mean, it, it can... It, it, 
the rubber band can stretch and it can say there can be like a real disparity for a mm. what feels mm. like an eternity but it just it, there's it's kind of like a financial law of gravity it just <laughs> right. something is going to give and more often than not the market will well not more often than not in every single case the market <laughs> will eventually recognize that because markets are pretty we like to sort of joke about how they do dumb things and they do do dumb yeah. things in the short term but over time they don't and and you know it, it's like if you if you can keep your eye it's like um i've got a couple of mates who ride uh, motorbikes, and they sort of say, right. you know, when you're when you're riding a bike, it, you keep your eyes on the horizon. You don't you don't look straight straight ahead of you. Um, that's that's where you get into real trouble. It's the same. Dude, with you have fed stolen that straight from me just quietly. Did I? I've stolen a lot you of stuff from you. And just straight, I, I, I've i written exactly that. But, but I, it's okay. You can give me credit afterwards. That's fine. You absolutely stole oh, it blindly while I'm in the room and everything. <laughs> what I'm not here. <laughs> it's it's a it's it is a great metaphor and. <laughs> And Isn't that? I, 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 you know, imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. So uh, <laughs> take take it take it for what it is, because it, it it is it is a it is a great say. It's also one of those things that's very rolls off the tongue very easily. And and I also know that like when in 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 the in the heat of the moment. You know, yeah. even the best of us are going to go, oh, that really yeah. sucks. And oh, if I got it wrong and the demons come at night and you really start to doubt yourself. So it's, I don't want to, I don't want to pretend for a second that it's easy, but, but that's, that is the edge that you have, I think, yeah. as, as an investor. If you can do that, you, you'll, you'll most likely uh, outperform a lot of the professionals if you can just, just <laughs> keep, keep your eyes on the horizon and not, not straight in front of you. I like it, mate. Quote myself back to me. That's always that's always good. Um, <laughs> I'll get to pay the royalty later, mate. Um, I, before we go back to, we got one last question. Before we do, if you do want your question answered, you want to leave us a comment, you want to get in touch, we simply want to follow us, interact on social media. We do encourage it. Um, Andrew is from Strawman.com. What is Strawman again? While we're here, Andrew. Strawman is a community of investors that share research and recommendations and share ideas and that they do that by managing virtual portfolios and contributing to shared company reports. And uh, it's just trying to sort of tap into a network of engaged, experienced investors to get better results. So it's, uh, uh, yeah, jump on, check it out. We give you $100,000 in play money to, to uh, trade the market uh, with real what, share prices. $100,000? Hundred thousand dollars, straw dollars. Of course, you can't spend straw it anywhere else. Dollars. But, are they are they redeemable for Dogecoin or something? Is it surely these days? Mm-hmm. They should be called straw coin, mate. You got to you got to get with the uh, go get with the cool kids. It was called straw coin. I missed a trick. Fortune by now. I missed a trick, man. I, I, I <laughs> needed did, to sort of did. put some blockchain terminology around it, but it's it's actually I think. Um, we use it as a signaling mechanism. So it's sort of like, you know, what is Scott like? Well, I can look at what, what you've got on your virtual portfolio. But I actually think if you're new to the market, it's a great way just to get some experience with, with real prices mm-hmm. and real stocks without any of uh, without any of the risks. So, yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah. that's what we are. Check us out. Yep, nice. Strawman.com. You can also follow Andrew on social media. So at Sage underscore Simeon, S-A-G-E underscore S-I-M-I-A-N, Sage Simeon, or at Strawman Invest are the two places on Twitter you can find Andrew. Rather than repeat myself, if you're either on Instagram or Twitter, you can follow me and The Motley Fool on either or both platforms at TMF, that's for The Motley Fool, at TMF Scott P., and at the Motley Fool AU on both Twitter and Insta. And if you're on Facebook, Scott Phillips Money is my work page, and the Motley Fool Australia is our Facebook page. And you can email us your comments, thoughts, criticisms, or bits of feedback info, info, info at fool.com.au. And our crack member services team at the Motley Fool will make sure that your questions and comments make their way to us and to the mailbag. So please do that if you wouldn't mind. Um, it's uh, we. Yeah, you know, this podcast is for you, quite honestly. Uh, Andrew and I love just chatting about stuff, but it's the inspiration we get from your questions and comments. And frankly, it, makes, it means that we know we're answering the questions you asked. Otherwise, we can just talk to ourselves. And frankly, mm-hmm. we can do that. We have done that many times in the past, often over a beer or two, um, about things that interest us. And that's great. We love it. But if uh, you don't love it, then by, frankly, it's your fault because you're not asking us the right questions. So jump on, <laughs> jump onto the socials, jump onto the email. Um, let us know what you want us to talk about. Uh, mate, last one. Uh, for today we got a, a question a question for Chris again or a, I'm not sure the same Chris or different Chris here we go uh, if you can get an ETF for example the beta shares NASDAQ ETF in Australia but you can also get the same the NASDAQ ETF in the US are you better off getting the US one 
Because when the time comes to sell, there are more potential buyers because of the bigger US market. So Chris is talking about ETFs or exchange-traded funds that track things like the NASDAQ or the S&P 500 or a different index. And he's basically saying, look, if you can buy the index here in Australia on the ASX or with an international broker buying it in the home country of that ETF. So for example, you might buy a NASDAQ ETF on the US market. Would you be better going with the US because there are more buyers and so hopefully the price will be higher? Andrew. That's an interesting question. I have to think about that Isn't a bit. My, my, my initial uh, reaction is, no, it won't make any difference because a lot of these ETFs, I think all of them have um, market makers. So the, what does the, a market the maker do? Are, who, uh, they they make a market, <laughs> so they'll they'll, they'll put, if you want <laughs> quite literally. So they they will provide a bid or an offer. Um, re- they they've got rules around that. You know that they, they know what the ETF is actually work worth right. by adding up all right. the little bits and pieces and stuff. And they'll they'll always so even brand new <laughs> ETFs is super illiquid. There'll always be someone that'll allow. They'll they'll try and make a little bit uh, arbitrage. I'm sure on that kind of yeah. stuff. Let's be honest. But it's not going to be meaningful, and I I don't think it's anything worth worrying about. I think the bigger consideration is is you know if you're doing it directly, you need an international trading account, mm. and mm. there's a, a added tax considerations and all the rest of it. But I can't imagine that there's going to be any significant. If the Nasdaq is up ten percent over the next year or so, I don't. Mm. I think you're going to get a, almost exactly ten percent um, in either scenario, right? Um, trying to think this aloud as I say it. Am I missing something or is that about right? Nope. You are absolutely spot on, mate. Um, so basically the the way I understand the market maker role, as you say, is exactly right. The thing with an ETF is there's no cap on the number of shares that can, or securities, but let's just call them shares to make it easy, that can be issued for the ETF, nor any cap on the reduction of those number of securities you can have because their job as market makers is to basically make as many as much liquidity available to you as an investor. If all of a sudden 5,000 of us wanted to buy the NASDAQ ETF, they would simply create, well, assume we're going to buy one each to make my math easier, they will create 5,000 new units in that ETF because you're mm-hmm. adding money to a fund. When a fund manager off the market gets more money from me or from you, they don't have to go and create more you know, units in a, in, a, in a fund, but they do the same thing. They basically go and take your money and they apply it across their current portfolio. An ETF does exactly the same thing. So, whether there's one of us, 10 of us, 1,000 of us, or a million of us all buying on the same day, as long as the market maker is physically able to, a million would be too much, but as long as the market maker is physically able to and ready for it, they will simply make as many new units available at the prevailing price. Their very job is to sell you units only, and by the way, buy back units only at the price that represents the underlying asset value of the fund, because that's what an ETF is. You're buying a fractional ownership in, for example, 100 non-financial companies on the NASDAQ, and if you're buying those and you add them all together, you divide them up, they're worth X dollars each, then that's the price mm. they are obliged to sell and buy at the same time from me or you or everybody else. So there should be no issue as long as the market maker is ready and, and physically able to. And that's, I don't know a situation where they haven't been, but I guess it's possible. So just for the sake of being clear without giving false hope or false confidence. Um, but generally speaking, a market maker's job is to, to make as many new units available or to buy back as many units uh, from sellers as is necessary without impacting the price, literally without impacting the price. That's kind of the idea. Um, so I'll, I'll just, you know, that that's, it shouldn't matter where you buy it. It shouldn't matter what you do with it. Um, generally speaking, my view, Andrew, for what it's worth is I would take the simplest of the options in that scenario. I would buy and sell on the ASX because I don't have to worry about then exchanging my US dollars for Australian dollars. Do. Um, so I would, I would do it yep. on the ASX. Now, I own US shares, by the way. I'm not saying don't buy US shares, but I'm saying if I got the chance to buy a, a NASDAQ ETF here or there, I'd buy it here. <laughs> if, you know, if, if there's no, if there's no fundamental difference. Chris's question is right. If there was a difference because supply and demand mattered, then it absolutely would make sense to hunt out the best price. But in theory, um, the asset value of both indices should be calculated at the same time by the same people on two exchanges. The price should always be effectively the same. It'll always be up by a couple of cents here or there. Um, But the price should always be effectively the same through the trading day, no matter where you're buying or selling. Fair yep, to say, mate? Yep. And, even thi- yep, and even things like currency differences will be uh, accounted for as well. Yep. So, yeah, it's, it's one of those things. We, we mentioned it um, earlier on. Uh, wh- whether or not this, and as you say, there might be a few cents difference, but whether or not this yep. proves to be a great or terrible investment, that, that's not going to be the swing factor in that. So yeah, don't, don't sweat it. Very, very, very interesting yeah. point you raise, but, but I, I wouldn't sweat it at all. It, it, does, it doesn't make it worth the hassle. 
No. On that note, mate, we are done. Before we go, though, don't forget, I'll do the full spiel this time. Don't forget, you can and should subscribe to the Triple M Motley Full Money podcast. Do it through iTunes, do it through your favorite Android podcast app, and. Or do it through the Listener app, the new Listener app from Southern Cross, Australia. We're part of the SCA network of podcasts. So check out the Listener app, S-L-I-S-T-N-R. There's no E because we're all cool kids around here and taking out vowels is what you do to prove you're a cool kid. So Listener, L-I-S-T-N-R. If you like what we're doing, please do give us a rating and a review. I say this every week. I know some of you have and will. Thank you very much for doing that. It genuinely helps us rise up the rankings. The podcast charts are a strange beast. They don't reflect the number of downloads or even the number of ratings or reviews, but all of that goes together in some weird algorithm in the background and helps podcasts pop up. So if you could and you would, uh, we'd certainly appreciate it. It also helps people who are considering the podcast understand what they can look for. Here's a bit of a, um, here's a, bit of a hint. This is even new for you, Ram. There's mm-hmm. gonna be, I'm going to be doing a new podcast. It's coming up soon. Oh, Cool. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just putting it out Tell there. Tell us about it. No, no, no details just yet. Just, just letting you okay. know. Get, get your podcast subscription button ready. It's going to be cool. <laughs> it's going to be fun. It's going to be exciting. Uh, so, get, there's, there's a bit of a, a, a bit of a sneak peek. I, I, I don't think I'm a bit of a tease. Cut out of the bag. So I won't, I won't tell you too much. But there is going to be a new podcast. I'm pretty sure, based on past experience, our listeners will enjoy it. Let me just leave it there. Awesome. Uh, anyway, I look forward. In the to meantime, it. <laughs> sorry, mate. I said I look forward to it. There you go. I'm sure you'll be a dedicated listener. You know it. (laughs) That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next Friday with another dose of Foolish Insight. Fool on. Catch you then. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.